Uh, how many of you like chocolate milk? Okay. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna ask another question here, and I'm not being silly. Okay, but here's the question: Where do you think chocolate milk comes from? In May of 2017, over 1,000 Americans were asked that very question. Where do you think chocolate milk comes from? And would you believe that a large percentage of Americans think that chocolate milk comes from brown cows? According to a poll conducted by the Innovation Center for U.S. Dairy, over 7% of all Americans believe chocolate milk is produced by brown cows. And just to give you a point of reference, you know how many people that is? 7% of the American population? That's over 16 million people. So, so over 16 million people in this country believe chocolate milk comes from brown cows. And if that weren't odd enough, Another 48% responded by claiming they were completely unaware of where chocolate milk came from. So think about this. You have 7% who are convinced chocolate milk comes from brown cows. Then you got 48% like, yeah, and we're just, we're just not so sure. Is anyone else just slightly depressed <laughs> about what this says about our country? Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, chocolate milk does not come from brown cows. That's not where it comes from. And you know what? In the grand scheme of life, it's not that important to know. Where does chocolate milk come from? But you know what is important to know? Really important to know, especially for Christians? It's not where does chocolate milk come from, but where does the strength and endurance to faithfully serve God come from. Right? It's one thing to not know where chocolate milk comes from, but where does the fuel, where does the energy, where does the stamina to faithfully serve God and his people come from? And, and I want to suggest it's a really important question, isn't it? Especially, especially for a church of our size. And you know why that is? It's because many of us, and Basil even alluded to a moment ago, many of us wear many hats here, don't we? That is, many of us serve in a variety of capacities in this church. And while serving God's people can be a joy, that's 100% true, Serving God's people can also be hard at times, can't it? It's not uncommon for Christians to feel at times depleted or maybe even worn out. And, and maybe that's, that's you this morning. I know there have been moments this past year that I have definitely felt that way, depleted, worn out, how about you 
So here's the question I want us to consider, and that is what truth do we need to be telling ourselves in order to give us the stamina, the endurance to faithfully serve God and his people in obedience? That is, where does this strength come from? Because this is what I want to just, before we look at the text, just preface one more thing by saying, this is what you have to understand, faith. You are the most influential person in your life. Do you realize this? You are the most influential person in your life. And you know why you're the most influential person in your life? Because you're constantly talking to yourself. You're constantly speaking to yourself and telling yourself something. And friend, whatever it is you're speaking to yourself, it's going to produce some kind of action. It will either bear the fruit of righteousness or the thistles of sin. Indeed, when you actually take a moment to think about it, is it not true? There is precious little in this world that we can control. Amen? What we have little control over our circumstances, but we do have complete control about what we're saying to ourselves about those circumstances. And this especially applies when it comes to serving God's people in the local church. So where does the strength to serve God and his people come from? Well, I'd invite you, if you haven't already, to please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. That's page 1004 in that paperback Bible. Let me provide those out in the lobby. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context for the last several weeks, we've kind of slowed things down, and we've really been focusing on Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, because this is one complete unit of thought in the author's argument. And you'll recall how the, the unit begins with him concerned about the dull hearing of the original readers, and it's going to conclude with him encouraging him to be earnest in hearing, and then right in the middle, chapter 6, verse 1, we see the author's burden, his main point in this section, and that is his burden is that we all would move towards Christian maturity. We would move towards Christian maturity. We'd give effort to growing up in our faith. And as we looked carefully at this passage, we've learned some key marks of what Christian maturity is. Because you recall, the author's been talking about the priesthood of Christ, and then he pauses and he says he wants to teach them more, but he can't because he discerns something in them, and that is spiritual infancy. They're dull of hearing. And as we've talked about in the past, it's not that they have a problem with their ears, they have a problem with their heart. Right? He wants to teach them. It's not that Melchizedek is so abstract they can't understand it. Nor is there anything wrong with that. But there's a moral issue. There's a problem with their heart. So you recall we've been looking at some marks of Christian maturity. And number one, Christian maturity, we looked at this, is heart-oriented. It's measured by righteousness. It's built on Christ. It's dependent upon God's intervention. And as we then looked at last week, Christian maturity is responsive to God's warnings. Last week, we looked at one of the hardest passages to really understand in the New Testament. 
And as we were studying that text, what was, was hopefully made clear is the truth that the God who ordains the ends is also the God who ordains the means. And one of the means that God has ordained to bring his own to final salvation are the warning passages, right? The sheep hear the good shepherd's voice and they obey, they heed the warnings. The warnings are intended to keep the elect from falling away. And you'll recall how this is how the author of Hebrews understands the warnings for what does he write there in chapter 6, verse 9? He says that though we speak in this way, though we speak of this, this warning to not turn away, he says, in your case, beloved, he says, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, the author is confident that they're going to hear this warning and they're going to persevere. So this is what I want you to see this morning. So notice, on the heels of the author's severe warning, he then encourages them. And Faith Community Church, please hear me. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, we find some precious truths that are intended not only to help us persevere in our faith, but also sustain us as we serve others. So look with me, if you would, to Hebrews 6. I'm going to start in verse 9 and read down to verse 12. So he just got done with the warning. He then gave the analogy of the land. In verse 9 he says this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And why do you, why author, why do you feel sure of this? Verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. That's the same word for dull. So that you may not be dull, but imitators. Imitators of those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. Amen and amen. This is God's good, good word. Several years ago, a young man living in Shanghai, he got dumped by his girlfriend right before Valentine's Day. So right before Valentine's Day, about a week before she broke up with him. And as you can imagine, this left him very sad. And not only left him very sad, but also left him bitter. So you know what the young man did? That Valentine's Day, he bought every other seat at a nearby movie theater so couples couldn't sit together on Valentine's Day. 
True story. There was, there was a romantic flick that was going to be shown in the downtown cinema there. And so he decided preemptively to buy every other seat so couples could not sit together and snuggle together as they watched this romantic movie. Now, some thought it was funny. Others, not so much. <laughs> Yet whatever you might think about this guy's action, I think we can all agree it was not loving. Right? Well, notice what we read in chapter 6, verse 10. In that passage, we see the author commending the original readers. And what does he commend them for? For showing love. They showed love to God in serving the saints. Yet I want you to notice that before he commends them about their work, he first teaches them and us a very important truth about our God. And what is it? That it's this, and that is God is not unjust. And what is he not unjust? He's not unjust so as to overlook a Christian's work in serving the saints. And faith, here we learn another mark of Christian maturity, and that is Christian maturity is confident of God's goodness. They're confident in the character and nature of God that he will not overlook what his people have done, that he will be faithful to reward. The mature Christian is aware that God sees their labor for him and his people. And faith, I want to suggest, going back to the initial question that we had, I want to suggest that this is the key truth. We must speak to our hearts. We must speak to ourselves if we're going to faithfully serve one another. Indeed, this truth is the fuel that can keep one joyfully serving in the church for weeks, months, years, even decades, and not be bitter like that man in Shanghai. <laughs> Faith, Christian, the people of this church might overlook your work. They might fail to thank you. Indeed, they might even grumble and complain about what you're doing or not doing. They might be disrespectful. They may not value what you do. They might be rude in how they speak to you. They might overlook all you're doing. But Christian, please hear me. God will never overlook your service. Amen? And Christian, consider how good this news really is. Now, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but the truth is we all, and I'm in this category, we all have a bent to being self-focused. And you know what? Self-focused people fail to notice those who serve, let alone thank them. You know, those you serve might overlook you. God never does. And you know what? Let's, let's, 
let's have our... Let's have our belief about God really meet us on the ground level here. The triune God, the creator and Lord over, over the cosmos. He, know, he doesn't overlook your work. And you know what? He's the only one that really matters. Amen? So this is what I, I would like to do here. I want to just drill down here for a moment. Because I think there's some very precious applications to this truth that will serve us well as a church. And the first one is this, Christian. Let us all, all of us in this room, let us be intentional and on the lookout to lavishly thank those who serve in this church. Right? Let us outdo one another in showing honor. Let us be quick to give thanks. Christian, be intentional to thank those who get here really early to set up the sound, to put out the signs, to set up the goodie table. In fact, do you even know who these people are? Might be a good question for you to consider. Thank those who greet in the foyer, who teach the kids, who care for the babies in the nursery who set up the chairs and teach the discipleship hour, who run the sound and the slides, who prepare communion, who teach the youth, who play music on Sunday. Christian, be gracious and quick to thank those who open their homes for community groups and women's and men's studies. Consider thanking those who create the bulletins and handle the offering and financial matters of the church. Christian, my encouragement to you in light of this text is for us as a church to really make it one of our aims to identify those who serve and to thank them from your elders, to nursery, to the goodie table, to the setup, to the deacon. To... Let us be quick to see and to give thanks. But then second, for those of you who do serve at faith, keep this truth on the forefront of your mind. The way to continue serving with joy is to remember that you're doing this for God. And that God righteously rewards those who do what pleases Him. I mean, how sad would it be if He didn't? How, how, how mean would that be, actually? But that's not our God. Our God faithfully rewards. And I want to encourage you that this truth will keep your heart from becoming bitter and giving way to grumbling, it will allow you to keep serving even if you're never thanked or noticed by others. Why? Because the only one who matters does see your work. But then there's a third application I want us all to consider. A moment ago, I mentioned that some of you are wearing many hats. 
But you know what? Some of you are wearing no hats. That is, you are not serving in any capacity in this church. And Christian, if that's true of you, that should not be. Consider what Paul writes in Titus 2. This, I mean, this is a glorious passage. Verses 11 through 14, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then he goes on and he says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and listen, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. And what, what is he redeeming these people for his own possession? People who, listen, who are zealous for good works. Christian, you have been saved so that you would be zealous for good works. In other words, you've been saved to serve. That's why he's redeeming you. That's one of the purposes why he's bringing you into his own. You've been saved to serve. So here's the question. Are you? The Bible never equates serving in the church with missing out or being robbed of an opportunity. Bible never does that. You will not find that in this book. That if you serve, you're missing out or you're being robbed of an opportunity. Such notion is not biblical. Rather, the Bible speaks of serving one another as a privilege and an honor. And listen, we have many needs here at Faith. As has been mentioned, one of our great needs is to have reliable people set up and take down the sound equipment. You know, since our transition to KCD, our needs have changed. Indeed, they've somewhat lessened, as we no longer have to set up and take down the chairs, and all God's people said, amen, right? But, if, but listen to me, if you're here this morning and you're appreciative of what takes place in this room every Sunday and out there in the foyer... It's because we have faithful men who have been diligent to set up and take down every week. And we need more of them. We could also use more help in our kids' ministry, in their nursery, in the hospitality. In other words, if you're not serving, please come see me and we'd love to get you plugged in. And, and what I want you to notice here in, in chapter 6, verse 10, I want you to notice how the author commends the original readers for showing true biblical service. And I'm, I'm just going to read the verse once more. Notice what he says here. He says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown 
for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He, he, he commends the readers for true biblical service. So in other words, this passage, I think, instructs us as to what biblical service looks like. Indeed, I'm going to suggest this text prompts us to ask ourselves two important questions. And here's the two questions this text invites us to consider. And the first is this. When serving, do I serve for God's glory or my own? Notice what he writes there in verse 10. Biblical service is to be done for God's name, not your own. That is, when serving in the church, your chief concern is the glory and honor of God. And please notice carefully what the author commends. He commends them for the love they have shown for God's name. Do you see that? They have a love for God's name, for God's glory. And their service of others was animated by a deep love and concern so that Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified. Is the same true for you? You know what's the the best test to know whether you're serving for God's glory or your own? How do you respond when no one thanks you or acknowledges you? Their, their north star, according to this text, was we love the name of God, his fame. So because we love him and want to make much of him, we serve our brothers and sisters in the Lord. So number one, do I serve for God's glory or my own? But then second, do I serve with love or irritation? I mean, you do realize, and I, I confess this, I, I can do this as a parent. Confession's good for the soul. I can serve my kids. I'm serving them so great. I can just, I can serve them, taking them with, with, the, with irritation. I'm serving them, but there's no love. The author of Hebrews writes, that your original reader's love for God is shown in how they serve the saint. They weren't serving reluctantly. They weren't serving with low-grade irritation. They weren't, they were, no, they were serving with love. What about you? What's your attitude when serving in the kids of faith? Or putting out the signs, or setting up the goodie table, or checking kids in at the kids of faith? Or doing the sound, or tearing things up? Or, or opening your home to host. I promise you this. If you get this first question correct, it will make serving others with love so much easier. And again, the, the big question that just stands above it all is, am I confident in God's character in his goodness, do I believe that he is just and that he won't overlook my work? 
Christian maturity is confident in God's goodness. And then finally, Christian maturity, I wanted to suggest, is diligence to persevere. So he, he commends them for their, their love that they have shown and they still do. So he sees in them that there's this love for the name of God, this love for the Lord and his glory. And he wants them to say, okay, see that love you show one another? That earnestness? I want you to apply it to your faith in persevering and keep believing in Christ. Because notice what he says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, right? This is the dull hearing, but rather, and how can they not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, the promise of final salvation. Several years ago, uh, Christian author Tim Challies, uh, he wrote a blog entitled this, Good Things Happen When My Wife Watches Cooking Shows. And he begins by saying how every now and again his wife, she kind of gets on this kick where she gets into cooking shows and as the title suggests, whenever she starts doing this, it works out really well for him and the kids. Why? He says, because once she starts watching, she then starts imitating and cooking and cooking the delicious things she sees on TV. And Charlie's in his article, he makes this helpful insight. He writes this, he says, whether in narrow pursuits like cooking or wider pursuits like living, we are people who thrive on imitation and inspiration. Whether deliberately or inadvertently, we are always on the lookout for people who are worthy of imitation. And you know what? The author of Hebrews agrees. We are in need of someone to imitate. Notice in verse 10, the author commends the, the readers for showing a love for God's name. Now here in verse 11, he wants them to show the same kind of diligence to keep believing in Christ. That is, he wants them and us to be diligent, not sluggish, and believing God's promises. I mean, I hope you see, as we've been working through this text, the Christian life is an active life. It's not passive. If you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ... The Christian faith is one of activity and intentionality. There's no lazy bones in the Christian life. The, the, the author wants us to be diligent, not sluggish. So the question is, how can we do that? Well, I think the last half of verse 12 helps us. The answer is by imitating those who previously obeyed in faith. Look, Christian, the Christian life, is, it's a faith of, of imitation. 
for us to diligently persevere, we not only need the encouragement of one another, he's going to talk about that later in chapter 10, but we need examples to imitate. What does it look like to walk the straight and narrow on the way to the celestial city? What does it look like to keep believing amidst hardships and suffering? We need examples to imitate. And this is why the author is going to devote all of chapter 11 to biblical examples of those who obeyed in faith, which was our whole theme for last year, was it not? And the truth is, we're all imitating someone. The question is, who? And it would do us all well to be familiar with the saints of old, and to learn from them how to patiently and earnestly hold on to God's promises. And the author, he's going he's to do that for us as we keep studying this book. Indeed, Christian, when we think about who or what to imitate, there's none greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Consider what we've learned about him thus far. Right? He was made like us in every respect. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. I mean, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the perfect mature one, do we not? He did not have a hardened heart. He did not rebel. He was not dull of hearing to his Father's commands. But instead, he perfectly obeyed. Indeed, as chapter 5, verse 8 taught us, in his humanity, he learned obedience through suffering. Why? So as the author says in chapter 2, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for our sins. Jesus died to save sinful people like you and me, and aren't we glad? And now as our high priest, he stands ready to give us grace to help in our time of need so that we might diligently obey God the Father just like Him. Christian maturity is confident in the character and nature of God and is diligent to persevere. And our great high priest offers grace to help us in these matters. Faith Chocolate milk doesn't come from brown cows. Sorry to burst your bubble if you thought that, but it doesn't. And I want to say to you, Christian, and the strength to faithfully serve God and others doesn't come from ourselves. The same God who rewarded his son by giving him a name that is above every name, that every knee shall bow and tongue will confess. Just as God the Father was faithful to reward His Son, our God is not unjust to us to overlook our work and reward us as well. May we believe in the good character of our God and may that fuel us in faithful obedience to Him. Amen? Let's pray.